1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
2: Public lands rule.
1: Doesn't that name right there just pique your interest, Bill? Everything about western public lands piques my interest because I'm jealous and envious and covetous of them. Well, if there's one thing you've taught me is that I have reasons to be
2: jealous and envious and covetous of your public lands and your opportunity out east too. But today we talked about the Bureau of Land Management's new public lands rule. This is a real kind of in the weeds process that's happening uh, to try and rebalance, reshape the way we manage these lands. 245 million surface acres across the western United States for the most part. Uh, hugely important fish and wildlife habitat, just lots of monuments, lots of things that people know and love. Maybe they don't know they're on BLM lands, but uh, really critical. And things have been a little
1: bit out of whack. And this rule is really designed to try to get things back in balance. Uh, I, I'm excited about it. I mean, I know how hard it is just to get a little bit of management on our smaller properties in this part of the country. And it's a lot of money, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of effort. And some out of the box thinking on this thing. And I think it's awesome.
2: Yeah. And these lands are, are, you know, it, it, they're the sagebrush sea. They're, they're timberlands. They're, they're a critical winter range for elk mule deer, bighorn, lots of the species we all like to pursue. Uh, and they are, a lot of them aren't in good shape. And really I hope if my hope of hopes, a lot of the lands I know that I've seen degraded out here, um, are, are, really kind of brought back to life with this rule. So I think it's a critical thing for hunters and anglers all across the country. Almost everybody dreams of, or tries to, or does indeed go out and hunt out West. And so you all have a stake in this. Hope folks will get engaged. We had David Wilms and Bailey Brennan of National Wildlife Federation, both natural resource experts uh, and and real experts on BLM. And they're gonna help you kind of unpack this thing and figure out you know, how you can get engaged and what it's really about. So. Enjoy the listen, folks. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. What's up, everybody? Aaron Kindle here with my friend and buddy, Bill Cooksey, coming to you live from western Tennessee, as we <laughs> had to reestablish today. Uh, welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. Today, we're going to talk about something that's probably been brewing in people's minds a little bit, especially out west here. It's called the public lands rule. Some people are calling it the conservation rule. It's a new rule. It's been uh, debuted by the Bureau of Land Management. It's a proposed rule at this point. And first, uh, I'm going to introduce our guest because we have two experts on natural resources law and policy, and uh, I'll, I'll just introduce them and then we'll we'll dive in. First, we have Bailey Brennan, and she is the Public Lands Counsel for the National Wildlife Federation our Public Lands Program. And then David Wilms, a, a prior guest on this podcast, so he's a repeat offender, and he's the associate vice president of public lands for the National Wildlife Federation, and both these guys are, have are, are lawyers and have lawyering in their past, and are experts on natural resources law, and you know will help us hopefully dissect this uh, concept today in layperson terms so we can all understand what's going on. But first, I'll just say, how are you today, Bailey and David?
3: Good, good. Thanks for having
2: me on. Yeah, doing great. Awesome. Well, that's all the, all, sometimes we dive into big bios, but that's all I'm going to do today. But we also, (laughs) we also say, uh, we also talk about what we've been doing outside. So we're going to take just a second there and I'll start, I'll start with you, Bailey. What, What have you been up to outside?
3: Um, let's see. It was just Memorial Day weekend. Um, so we spent a lot of time outside. My husband and I took our two-year-old daughter um, for a float on the Bighorn River in Thermopolis, Wyoming. Um, yeah. She's very excited about being in a boat and about the idea of catching fish, uh, but she doesn't her behavior doesn't always enable us to do that. <laughs> uh, so it was a fun trip. It was a nice float. We did not bring any fish to the boat, but um we're making an investment now in the future of a, of a daughter who we hope will be
2: very fishy. For sure. <laughs> How about you, David. I know you've been on some adventures.
4: Yeah, you know, um Memorial Day weekend took, a, took an extended weekend with my family and and went up into uh, Yellowstone National Park and Grand Teton National Park as well. Uh, little, I hate to give this information away, being more of the uh, – uh, I don't want to say local because I'm several hours away, but local enough to know that one of the best times to go to the park is right after they open the roads for the season because schools are still in session for kids families haven't started their road trips and all the wildlife is starting to reemerge and re-enter the park uh and you know bears are starting to come out of out of their dens from the winter and it's just a wildlife watching dream and the traffic's not a nightmare yet uh it's really a great time to be in the park so spend a few days up there with the family
2: nice and i should say both of our guests today are from wyoming and i, I don't i think wyoming might have the very most blm acreage besides Dang. alaska obviously no
4: no it's no. got a ton nevada nevada oh don't yeah nevada. Nevada. i
2: always forget about nevada nevada always lo- is lost in my mind but uh, a lot and utah just so, yeah <laughs> a lot just so we should say that uh these people aren't unfamiliar with actually stepping foot on
1: these lands either. I want to make that clear. Bill, what about you? What have you been doing? Man, uh, we got through turkey season, and it was a good one. Every hunt started with a boat ride, and that was kind of cool, and uh, bass fishing's picking up, but the Memorial Day weekend, I mean, there were people everywhere here on Kentucky yeah. Lake, so I tended to stay off the water, and uh, I'll make up for it later this week. How about you, Aaron? Oh,
2: you know, most of the same, little shed hunting, little, little fishing. Uh, My my son just graduated from high school this past weekend. So lots of in-laws and things like that. Not, not so much outside time, but uh, we're gearing up for a backpack this next weekend. So it's the warm season and it's time. The river is pretty blown out right now for any, any typical local, you know, fly fishing, but Mm. uh, we'll be out there soon. Let's jump into this. And I think uh, we'll start with, you know, just, what the heck the BLM, BLM is. BLM stands for Bureau of Land Management. Now, that's a pretty wide term. You could think who knows what they manage exactly, but they were actually established by Congress and long ways back, and we're going to ask these guys to help us just kind of figure out, you know, what it is and then how we got to this point today. So maybe I'll start with you, David, just for folks in the East and other places who aren't familiar with BLM. What, what is the BLM?
4: I, I I'll start with the very simple thing. The BLM is originally all the land that nobody else wanted. That's probably the way to think about it. You know, you have your your forest reserves, you know, national forests and national parks and monuments and wildlife refuges, and then you had the homesteading act with homesteaders, you know, you know, taking up uh, you know taking up land. You had railroads run through, you had all of this land first acquisition and then disposition Uh, and what was left was viewed kind of as for the longest time as kind of like trash land. I hate to use that word, but that was kind of the mindset for the longest time. This was land that nobody else wanted until all of a sudden people realized there were value to it. Right. And that value first started with things like discovering oil. And all of a sudden, the federal government thought, ooh, this land maybe is more valuable or useful than we thought. And then there was a lot of interest in using it for grazing. Right? And so livestock grazing became popular. Um, and so the, once the land was being used more, there was this. the federal government created the General Land Office in 1812, right? which was meant to deal with, first, disposition of the lands. Like, how do we get rid of all these lands? That was... That's what the land office was for. And then over time, we started to see this, this change, that there was there was maybe more value to the lands uh, than, than just trying to dispose of them. And you wound up with uh, the Taylor Grazing Act being passed in the 1930s, which started to manage range health and make sure that you didn't overgraze. And then uh, the Bureau of Land Management was created in 1946. And it it set up to kind of manage some of these uses that we were seeing on the landscape. The the Mineral Leasing Act was in place and oil and gas was, was being leased and homesteading still existed at the time. And so there was still this disposing of lands, but also collecting revenues off of the uses of lands that was going on during this time. And then you started to see a change, I think, in the mindset of the people. Uh, and people started to say, you know, there's some inherent value to this land for other purposes than just getting rid of it or, or transferring the ownership to private individuals. There, there, there's recreational value to it. You know, people hunt and fish out there. They hike out there. Uh, and this conservation movement started that really it culminated in 1976 with the passage of the federal land management, let's see, FLIPMA F L Federal Land Management Planning Act, uh, and and that that is the act. And I'll turn it over to Bailey here in a second. But the, to correct all of the mistakes I've made, but that is the act that that formally ended homesteading, and it it really changed the policy of the United States, which had for for two centuries prior been. We have this land, we should dispose of it, meaning we should transfer it to states or to private individuals. And there was a decision made by by Congress at behest of the people to say what we have left we should hang on to. Now there are still ways to dispose of parcels here and there. You know, you you, you there are management opportunities there, but for by and large, the objective at that time was to say. We're ending this process of transferring the ownership of of these federal lands to uh, non-federal owners, and we're retaining that land in the public sphere to be managed for the benefit of the public, which includes an entire array of uses. And I'll stop there. That's my short history of the BLM.
3: Uh, What did I (laughs) Uh, no, that's great. Uh, it's a good history lesson. The one thing I will correct, David, and it's it's the-
4: FLIPMA. You're going to correct me on FLIPMA.
3: Federal Land Policy <laughs> Management Act.
4: Thank you. I and knew it the I, second it came out of my mouth.
3: <laughs> we operate in a world of acronyms all day, every day. Uh, so I've been looking at that statute and- the name of that statute over and over again for the last several weeks. Um, I'll just, the one thing I will add is when Congress passed FLIPMA, they didn't say oil and gas, grazing, mining, these things that have been, you know, public lands have been used for, for decades, aren't, you know, not allowed anymore. (laughs) It was a, it was a this and all of these other things. So the Congress charged BLM with managing public lands for those uses and many others um and it's a complicated and complex job for sure
2: yeah bailey and i i think one of the things i wanted to help folks understand a little bit too is the size and scope of these lands Uh, you know we're talking 245 million acres mostly across the west huge chunks of land places people know probably but maybe don't go hey that's blm places like almost everybody's heard of the grand staircase national monument gigantic over a million acres that's something uh huge field offices several national monuments large swaths of places like nevada and wyoming and utah you know and and i think for our audience they folks should know too incredible winter range for a lot of big game if you've heard of the path of the pronghorn through Wyoming much of that goes through BLM lots of lots of stuff that the sporting community really really cares about and and you know spends a lot of their time on so wanted folks to kind of understand that and I read something thinking about this is that it's one of every 10 acres in the United States is the BLM and another I guess important thing we should say is it's also 700 million acres of subsurface minerals, which means they control most of the, you know, mineral estate of the United States and and the leasing, even some offshore stuff, really, really huge, uh, you know, portfolio. And so this is a big deal, even to folks who aren't, you know, spending their time on BLM or folks like Bill, we were talking earlier, he said he might, he doesn't know if he's even stepped foot on a BLM acre. He probably has. And he just didn't know it because some of these are kind of out there in the middle of nowhere. But
1: and they have a lot of mineral holdings in the east, so yeah, that definitely impacts my part of the country.
2: Yeah, so if there's ever going to be energy mineral development type things in the east, you know, those are something that are lots of times public minerals that you know you can you can provide input on, and you can talk about how they may impact. Different wildlife values and stuff like that in the development process, so there is opportunity to to engage. And um, what we're going to talk about today is maybe a couple things have gotten off kilter a little bit with the way uh, the BLM was originally intended to operate. And um, I think for for some of us, like maybe Bailey and David and I, we kind of know some of those things, and we're trying to help people understand and unpack that. So. The BLM came out with the public lands rule. Some people call it the conservation rule. What the heck is that? Who wants that one?
3: (laughs) Um, I'll take a stab. Um, Yeah, so like you mentioned, Aaron, um, BLM just issued a proposed rule. Um, It's not final yet. There's a draft out, and the agency is taking public comment on it. Um, But the purpose of the rule would be to elevate conservation as a use on par with other uses that the agency has been charged with with managing public lands for. Um, So we mentioned a little earlier, grazing, oil and gas development, mining, um, BLM has permitted Um, activities on public lands over the last several decades since Flipma's passage that maybe are more extractive in nature. Um, And this rule would um, identify and elevate conservation um, as a use that that is on par with those uses. And it does does so in a number of different ways. um, You know, one thing I really want to emphasize here is that Congress intended for this to happen. Um, they intended for the agency to manage public lands for uses other than um, just grazing and mining, and oil and gas, and things like that, energy development. Um, the agency or the Congress specifically says, you know, fish and wildlife watersheds. Um, Natural and uh, scenic values. They they acknowledge that public lands have a value um, and uses um, that that are really grounded in, in conservation. Um, so this rule takes that mandate um, and puts put some meat on on some of the bones that that FLTMA has. Um, so that's super generally what what the rule is doing. Um, and I'd like to talk more about details.
2: Yeah, Bailey, I think one of the things that I wanted to really kind of try to unpack is, as you said, kind of Congress already designed it this way to some degree, right? And, you know, what's the problem? And, and maybe we can talk a little bit about, you, you talked a bit, but, you know, my experience on BLM lands, I know your and David's experience on BLM lands, some of these lands are not in good shape. Some of these lands have clearly maybe taken one part of that you know, mission and that charter and neglected it. So maybe maybe talk a little bit about that part.
3: Sure, yeah, I think that we are seeing, as a result of a number of factors, um, degraded habitat and landscapes on BLM. I think you take invasive species like cheatgrass, wildfire, um, juniper encroachment, um, and then also human development, things like oil and gas development um, and, and other activities on public lands um, have led to habitat that's um, in need of some active management um, and other areas that are still in really good shape um, that are in need of some additional protection. Um, so this rule would, would try and address those things through a, a number of different avenues.
4: Um, yeah, can I touch on one of those in particular, just like as a specific example? uh, I, this cheatgrass example and folks that aren't from the West might not, uh, I know cheatgrass is kind of found in a lot of places around the country, may not really understand the, the true impacts of cheatgrass and, and what it means, especially if you're a hunter and angler, uh, particularly a hunter, right? Cheatgrass is a, an early emerger, meaning it's one of the first things to grow when, the, when, when we come out of our thaw in the spring it's non-native so it's an invasive species it's not from the United States It, it came here and it's established itself but it it grows before everything else and then it creates these seed heads and it dries out and those seeds drop to the ground and then the grass that's left behind is incredibly flammable And we're talking high density grasses. They outcompete the other grasses and forbs and they take over because they emerge early and they're high density. So they you have now condition. Oh, and I should mention they're very, very low nutritional value. So for for wildlife, you know, you've taken the native grasses and forbs that have all this nutritional value and you've probably replaced them with something that has nutritional value for a very short period of time when they're emerging in the spring. But once the seed head forms, they've lost their nutritional value. So nothing can really eat them and they dry out fast. And in the West, it's dry. Folks from the West know it's dry. And so you take that And you put it on a landscape that's dominated by sagebrush as your major overstory plant. And you introduce fire to that. And what you've done is you completely altered the landscape. You've increased fire frequency by decades. You've increased fire intensity. And so now the whole system's out of whack because of this one invasive species. And it wreaks havoc on the wildlife wreaks havoc on sage grouse, it wreaks havoc, havoc on mule deer, on pronghorn, like the things that really need these, this diverse plant base uh, and need this sagebrush ecosystem, it really, really negatively impacts them. And I, so I just wanted to hone in on one very specific example because nationwide, and I, I can't tell you the numbers for BLM, it's a huge number, but nationwide, something like 100 million acres of lands are covered with cheatgrass. We're talking a, We're not talking an insignificant issue here. It's a
0: big deal.
3: And cheatgrass doesn't know what's private land and what's state land and what's public land. It takes root somewhere and spreads across the landscape. So, really, the best way to treat it is to identify potential partnerships between state and federal agencies and private landowners, and and to pool resources and capacity and and try and do that. Try and try and tackle it together.
1: I'm kind of amazed by how similar this sounds to some of our Eastern issues where David touched on it earlier, the land no one wanted. Um, That's our coastal marsh and and our river bottoms and that sort of thing that we've just, we allowed to basically be destroyed, even like the Everglades, you know, it just, it was worthless property. And and now they're invasive species taking over. There's coastal landline. Y'all are dealing with those same things, similar issues out West. And it sounds like this is a step to try to pick some of that anyway.
2: Yeah. Sorry to everybody about that. that. <laughs> Go ahead, <laughs> Bailey.
3: I was gonna say, yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean I think I've I visited the Everglades and that place felt more like wilderness than a lot of wilderness areas um out west. Um but when you're dealing with something um I think of the scale of the Everglades or out west. You need um, a rule and some planning um, that that helps provide some some structure and, and guidance um, to tackle the kinds of issues that David mentioned and that I've been talking about. and And the rule proposes to do that. Um, uh, I think that you know it. One tool that it it provides is um, conservation leasing, Uh, if we want to jump right into things. Um, Conservation leasing, the agency proposes, um, would be an opportunity for the public, private entities, um, tribal governments, um, NGOs, even individuals and corporations um, to hold a lease on public lands to do restoration activities, um, really give um, the public some ownership in restoring some of the degraded landscapes that we've been talking about, which is, which is super exciting um, and a, an impressive opportunity. I think there's some kinks to be worked out, but, um, but an exciting tool that the agency is proposing.
2: Howdy listeners. For more great content, check out
1: NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. And for even more excellent content, here's a message from our
2: partner podcast.
3: Hey everyone, this is Ashley Chance from Artemis Sportswomen. We know you love awesome stories about hunting, fishing, and conservation. So head on over to the Artemis podcast. You'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Well, I was just trying to think about you know the conservation leasing and the concept back to what we were what we were talking about with degraded lands and I wanted to paint a picture for a second because I think a lot of people you know they they look out and they see sagebrush they drive across the Wyoming the Red Desert Wyoming let's say and there's a sagebrush I don't know it still looks like sagebrush right now right but if you if you understand the ecosystem function and you think about it when that cheatgrass is there. You, you're losing things like the forbs and the native grasses and all the, you know, obligate species that come and rely on those that create that healthy ecosystem for songbirds, for migratory wildlife, all of those things. And it's it's kind of like seeing, a, you know, if you've been in a forest and it's just one species of trees, it's almost like if you break it down to a macro level, you've got cheatgrass with sagebrush. Now, if you see a healthy sagebrush ecosystem, you've got yarrow and paintbrush, multiple species of native grass. You've got lots of insects. You've got lots of things flourishing in there. And those things that maybe you don't notice from the road are the difference between life and death for a lot of the species that rely on those ecosystems. And and when Bailey talks about this ability to do these conservation leases, I think that's one of the most exciting things to me because an entity out there could see that and know that and understand that and say, we're going to invest in this. We're going to restore this. We see this as a a public good, you know, that we can help the BLM bring back when they don't have the resources. And maybe we won't talk about it, but the BLM has been plagued by also not not just sometimes not doing a great job, but also just not having the resources often uh, to, to do these things. And so I'm really excited about that potential for the partnership.
4: Yeah, that was the piece I was going to jump on. Actually, was the the fact that you go back to what I said at the very beginning. How you know, over the course of history, BLM was BLM lands were kind of viewed as that the land nobody else wanted, uh, and so I think some of that mindset has continued on uh, for years in in the way it's been the agency's been funded relative to other land management agencies, for example, and it's been perpetually underfunded to be able to do the to be able to enact its entire charge under flipma and so to to stand up a program like this uh, like this conservation leasing where you can invite public private partnerships it it, you know, it it creates this potential infusion of new resources to actually do help do that work help help the agency do that work that really needs to get done where there really haven't been the resources for the longest time. Now we are at this weird and not weird I, I should say wonderful inflection point right now where there there are a lot of resources that have come into the agency uh, through two acts of Congress in the in the past couple of years through the the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the inflation reduction act, but that money's going to be spent and cycled through. And, and then we probably wind up in a similar cycle, uh, with, with Congress, uh, you know, with their historic investments into the agency. So this is a wonderful opportunity to infuse more money into, uh, on a voluntary basis, by the way, more, more, more money into, uh, conservation, you know, restoration activities on BLM.
1: Okay. This is NWF Outdoors, so I have to ask: Why is it hunters and anglers should care, whether they're from the east or the west? um, Why should we care? You want to take it, or you want me to take it?
3: Go for it, David. I'll follow up. Um,
4: I'll tell you why I care, and and why I care is why you should care. (laughs) (laughs) I. I do all of my hunting on public land, all of it, and and most of it is on Bureau of Land Management lands. This winter here, now this is—I'll give one analogy. This has been one of the toughest winters we've ever had, certainly in my lifetime, probably since before World War II. As far as uh, the impacts to wildlife coming out of this winter. It means to me that going forward, as we try and recover these populations, and I mean populations where we lost between 80 and 100% fawn loss of last year's fawns for mule deer and pronghorn in in many parts west of the Continental Divide, catastrophically bad winter. It is critically important from a habitat standpoint to invest in restoration to build up those Um, that native plant ecosystem that Aaron was talking about to help these populations recover and help them uh, not just recover, but to thrive. Um, We need that. Like we can't do it without the habitat. This is their winter range. This is where they spend, this is where our, our iconic elk herds and mule deer herds and pronghorn herds and bighorn sheep herds. And this is where they spend half of the year, maybe more than half of the year actually, when you really think about how short the summers are here, um, they're spending more than half of their time on these BLM lands. They need it for the water. They need it for forage. They need it for raising their young, you know, all of that. And so as a hunter, you know, I want the land to be in the best condition possible to support these animals so that I have opportunities going forward as well and that my kids have opportunities going forward as well. And this, this is one one tool in the toolbox, you know, I hate to use that old analogy, but this creates another tool in the toolbox to help us get there.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, one thing I will add is one of my favorite places, to fish in the state of Wyoming is on BLM lands. And so from, just from an angling perspective, um, this rule has the opportunity to not only provide and improve forage for for big game, for elk, for mule deer, for antelope, but also to improve and protect water quality um, to identify how um, water quality is impacted by other uses, um, by drought, by wildfire. To to try and anticipate those impacts and and to prevent um, to prevent them and, and protect water quality. Um, you know, I think we I live in a headwater state, um, and um, you know, it's it's one of the reasons I live here because water quality is. Is what it is. It's um is so amazing, and and I think that's true for a lot of states in the West. Um, and it's important to to protect, uh, to protect that water quality and and anticipate potential impacts to it. Um, so from an angling perspective, equally important.
4: I'd add one more thing on the angling front too, because of the there's the opportunity for stream bank restoration projects here as well. So if you want to improve just the, the, the water quantity or the the you know you know where the pools are and you know, the fish habitat. Just you know, bank restoration does a lot of good things for just for fish habitat. It's I mean that's an important piece of this as well. Yeah, I, I should jump. Oh. Go, ahead.
2: go ahead, Bailey.
3: I was going to say I think that's one ex one one way this rule is exciting is at least the conservation piece is it the conservation leasing pieces. Is- it allows public lands users to be creative and to respond to the needs of the landscape um, by identifying the projects that are most needed given given the impact. So um, it really opens the door for creative and thoughtful um, projects.
2: Yeah, I get fired up about stream restoration, by the way, I love that. and. And if you, if folks who've spent a lot of time on BLM, have seen a degraded stream, it do, it doesn't take that long to to find one on BLM lands. You know the, and I think the way I kind of interpret this in a real, you know, easy sense is is basically like there's like a handful of buckets of all the things the BLM was supposed to do throughout its life, and one of the buckets never got any you know water poured into it or whatever and, and a lot of it and, and a lot of it was conservation and i don't mean conservation in the hey this is a wilderness area or this is a you know protected place per se but just the actual conservation of the landscape the actual sustained yield of the resource that's on the landscape i have visited a ton of blm lands, spent a lot of time on them where they're completely degraded barely anything wants to use them or does, or, or passes through very quickly. And I use another analogy that if you've got a, a mule deer herd, let's say that's, that relies on a 500,000 acre parcel and 50,000 of it is severely degraded. And then you have a winter like David just talked about, and and you had done restoration through, through a rule like this, that's 50,000 acres, more of a chance that they have. That's some percentage less mortality of those fawns. And, 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 you know, animals that didn't survive the winter. And that's a lot bigger deal than I think people make it out to be. And, you know, gone are the days when we can just as hunters and anglers show up at our place and count on the resource to be there. We have to engage. And this is a cool opportunity because the BLM is giving us a formal, you know, opportunity structure to engage, show them, help them, you know, figure out what we can do in the future to bring these lands back to a healthy and intact state. And I think that to me is is man, that's that's pretty that's pretty cool, even though it's kind of, you know, in the weeds as we're talking about this and as most people are trying to interpret it.
4: Couldn't agree more. <laughs> couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more. I, the silence is the silence is deafening for all the right reasons there, Aaron, because you said you had to, had to let it settle in. So, so profound and well, well stated. <laughs>
1: yeah. So c- could y'all explain this conservation leasing a little bit for me? Uh, because I'm really unclear. I don't quite understand what's going on there.
3: Yeah, definitely. So, the BLM over the last, you know, four or so decades has issued leases, permits, right of ways to non-public entities to do things like put up a transmission line or a cell tower or oil and gas development or more recently things like wind farms or solar utility-scale development. Um, this would take those concepts. Um, and implement them in the conservation context. So um, somebody could identify a project that they're interested in carrying out on public lands, a restoration project, apply to the BLM for a conservation lease. The BLM would grant that lease for a period of up to 10 years. Um, and give the applicant, the leaseholder, the authority they needed to go and, and complete that restoration work. Um, so it's an opportunity for a non-public user to really take some ownership and, and occupy public lands for the purpose of, of restoration and conservation.
1: That's exciting stuff. Does it have
2: to be restoration, Bailey? Or can it be other activities?
3: Yeah, so we've mostly been talking about restoration. The rule also um, contemplates entities who have degraded, like who have impacted public lands. So like your solar scale utility development um, could use a conservation lease to offset those impacts. So to mitigate those impacts. Um, So mitigation or restoration; those are the the two primary purposes for a for a conservation lease under the proposed rule.
4: And can I say the cool thing about that mitigation piece, by the way, is right now the way it works is if you have a project on public lands and it's going to cause a disturbance and you need to do some mitigation, that mitigation is usually offsite and it's on on private lands. So. You're you're having an impact on public land, but mitigating that impact on private land, and this gives you an opportunity to have that mitigation occur on public lands where the disturbance is occurring. So it it ties it a little bit closer, and it, and it's again it's it's that public land nexus of you know this is these are you know the the publics. Uh, uses these lands and so to be able to have mitigation in the, in the same place where the disturbance occurs or within the same land ownership that the disturbance occurs I think is a yeah uh, I think that's another good piece of this
3: yeah the public would have the opportunity to to reap the benefits of that mitigation um, unlike now where it happens on private
2: do we have any sort of corollary any any you know conservation leasing type system that maybe provides an example of how this will work and can, you know, could an average person have a conservation lease or do you have to have some sort of, you know, are they going to do requests for qualifications to prove that, you know, you can, you know, maybe, maybe talk a little bit more about the scheme of how this will operate. I think that's a big gray area for a lot of us.
3: So a a qualified individual could apply for a conservation lease. Um, There's a question as to what what qualifications that individual would have to have or any other entity applying for a lease. Um, But you do have to be able to show financial assurances that you have a plan that you're going to carry out the the plan as promised. You have to put up some bonding. Um, There's the potential that you have to. Um, pay some kind of fee or rent, even nominal, um, for that for holding that conservation lease. Um, so there are some requirements in place, but um, it's also you know, open and available to anybody who is interested in in holding a conservation lease. Um, Aaron, oh, the examples, other examples of conservation leasing. So we're seeing this happen on private lands a lot. Um, Compensatory mitigation has happened in the the wetlands context, in ESA ESA, Dangerous Species Act context. Uh, We're seeing conservation leasing happen on state lands as well, um, in places like New Mexico and elsewhere across the West. Uh, BLM did actually implement something similar um, in California in the renewables context in in recent years. So it is... um, it's a relatively new tool. Um, but it's not brand new. Um, there are other examples out there.
4: Yeah. And this is going to oversimplify it just a little bit, but I think it's a fair example, um, that a lot of farm bill programs, especially in the conservation section of the farm bill, uh, for those that are familiar of it, familiar with it, like CRP, for example, I mean, that's kind of like, a conservation lease you're in that instance you're paying the landowner not to grow something and to revegetate with native plants right, for a certain period of time for habitat purposes and soil health and water health and and you know we have these these uh different conservation programs under the farm bill that i think are analogous to a con- uh, this concept of conservation leasing so you know for those that think this is a a foreign you know completely new concept i i think this is an outgrowth of concepts that we've had in place for decades and we're just applying it and creating um a product or that that fits in the public land sphere as opposed to what we've done for so long which is to create these conservation programs that that fit into the private land sphere
1: so We're talking about an immense amount of of land. I mean, it's it's hard for an Easterner like me to even get my mind wrapped around the kind of acreage you're dealing with. Will this solve the problems y'all are seeing out there? (laughs) How far will it go? Best case scenario. Let's go with that.
3: So, I, David talked earlier about kind of the evolution of the Bureau of Land Management and management of public lands in the West. And I see this rule as another step in that evolution, um, that it is recalibrating how the agency thinks about land management. It's not going to fix everything and it's not going to change anything overnight. Um, but it is, I think, a really important change in how the agency is thinking about. Um, public land use. Um, and I think provides some important planning and um, management tools for the agency to do that. But it doesn't solve everything. There are a lot of issues it doesn't address for sure.
2: I agree. I don't have anything to add to that. I think really I was waiting for you well. to say something like, oh no, it's going to be a, a, just a barn burner here. It's going to take care of it all. <laughs> <laughs> uh i know we're we don't have a lot of time today uh to to get into this too much further but i think we've done a pretty good job explaining it i want to ask one more one more thing because i i have some personal experience with these there's these there's these lands called acecs and that stands for areas of critical environmental concern and these are blm designations that arise when there's perhaps a sensitive or special plant species or a unique wildlife habitat or a special stream with a endangered fish or something like that. And then one of the complaints that, uh, you know, is out there is like well, build them doesn't necessarily treat these like anything different, even though they have this designation. And the rule does a little bit to address that. Perhaps Bailey, you can, you can talk about that. What are they thinking about when they're, when they're trying to address the ACEC issues?
3: So the rule proposes to provide some additional guidance and direction to the BLM when they're inventorying or taking a look at all of the lands they have to identify areas for ACECs and to actually prioritize designating those areas, as is required under FLIPMA. Um, The agency, since FLIPMO was passed in 1976, hasn't had robust regulations on the books and when it comes to ACEC designation. So this changes that. Um, It requires the BLM to provide a report, annual report on existing and new ACECs and how they're being managed. So I think it provides some accountability um, that the agency doesn't currently have, which I think hopefully will address some of those management issues, Aaron, that you mentioned. I think that is a criticism of the agency that it 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 identifies and designates these areas, but doesn't follow through on the management. So I think there's hope that um, that kind of accountability will help address, address those issues. Um, I think that funding capacity of the agency is just going to always be, maybe not always, I can be optimistic, but is currently and will currently, or for for the foreseeable future, be an issue.
2: Is it safe to say that this thing is really mostly just kind of a resetting and 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 a reconfiguring the thing that it was always supposed to do? And we're just really just kind of trying to get back to the original intent.
3: I think that's right. We've been characterizing it as a a rebalancing or just a balancing um, back to Congress's original intent in passing FLIPMA, which was certainly to continue using lands for those activities like grazing, mining oil and gas, but also acknowledging that there are going to be areas in on public lands that should be used for other purposes, like wildlife habitat, like recreation and and hunting and angling and other kinds of uses good let's hope it works like that we should
2: we should leave folks too with kind of a little bit about the process the timeline kind of what's next how people can engage a little bit Bailey you've been following this most closely why don't you kind of just tell us where we're at and where we're headed
3: Sure. The agency, right now, as I mentioned, um, put out this draft rule. Um, They are accepting comments on the rule until June 20th. Um, And then the agency will, and anybody can submit a comment. Um, So, you know, if you are interested, um, please find the rule, read the rule, submit a comment. But then the agency will review those comments and probably make some changes and issue a final rule Um, we're hearing sometime next spring, the spring of 2024. Um, And then that rule um, would carry the the full force and effect of a law. Um, So I would encourage you to to get engaged. Uh, There are also a number of public meetings happening over the next week um, or two. Um, the agencies answering questions and, and giving an overview of the rule too. So would recommend finding those.
2: Awesome. Yeah. Uh, We'll provide a link uh, to, to the main page that the BLM, you know, explains the rule and allows you to comment and so on. Uh, I know we got to wrap up here. Anything you want to leave us with either of either of anybody here who, who has something wise to say before we go here? (laughs)
4: I'll say one thing, which is don't be afraid to participate in the process here to submit public comments. It's really, really easy to do. You can go to um, federalregister.gov.gov, and you can just type in BLM rule just in the search engine. You'll, you'll, you'll be able to find it, pop up. And there's a green button uh, when you pull up that rule. It says submit comment. And you can type your comment in there. And it's important to know that the agency is required by law to consider your comment, and frequently, in almost every instance of of a rule being uh, going from proposed to final, public comment results in changes to the rule and so public comment really really matters and and your voice really really matters and so I would strongly encourage anybody uh, that's even the lead, least bit interested in your public lands to go comment on this proposed rule.
2: Yeah, I, I will, I will add to that and say, I think a lot of people feel like, Oh, my anecdote, you know, isn't going to make a difference, but the sum of all the anecdotes really paint a picture that the BLM needs to hear. And uh, it's critical that we use our voice. Like I said before, that uh, days are gone of just showing up in your spot and hoping it's great year after year you got to do something for it you got to work for it um and it's not too much to ask for the amazing resources we get to enjoy here in the in the United States so maybe we can leave it with that unless you want to say anything Bailey I see you still maybe have something
3: <laughs> yeah i can't resist um no public lands management is hard the the charge that congress gave to the BLM and to the public to manage these resources for multiple use for all of these different resources resources and values is a near impossible task. Um, And it's one that requires constant dialogue, constant conversation, constant weighing and reweighing of our priorities, of our values. And it does, as David mentioned, require the public to participate. do make sure that your voice is heard, be part of that dialogue. Um, and yeah, be part of the, be part of the solution.
2: Well, awesome guys. I appreciate you spending some time here. It's a, it's a thick subject. I think to a lot of people, they say, Oh man, this is who knows what the heck this is. And, uh, if you're not living, breathing it every day, you may not be as, uh, compelled to get involved, but please do. It, these are, these are a huge chunk of our American landscape, really critical to lots of the wildlife we all know and love. Go push that green button. We'll provide the link and uh, appreciate you guys being here today.
3: Thanks, thanks for having me.
2: Yeah. I appreciate you having me. Thanks. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media
1: on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter connect with us we want to hear from you send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments we are nwf outdoors